Epilogue, September 8th, 2022. If you're looking for cool details from the revival of Tattoo the Earth, like set lists and anecdotes and stories from backstage, you're not going to get it here. I was invisible. You'd be hard-pressed to find any record that I was ever there that day. I was erased. If you've already read Caravan of Pain, you're about to read the entire book in miniature. The same shit happened in Worcester, Massachusetts, complete with heartbreak, getting ripped off, and getting ganged up on at the end. Some of you might wonder what the fuck did I think was going to happen. And I'm thinking that myself. But I had a chance to do Tattoo the Earth again. Man, I took it. To those who attended the Worcester show, my concern is that my account will dampen what was a spectacular day for the bands, fans, and tattoo artists. I've never had a good time at any show I've put on. And really, who gives a shit about me? Any producer, promoter, musician, or artist who thinks they are the most important person at a show is missing the point. It's all about the fans. And I couldn't resist the buzz of Tattoo the Earth turning them on one more time. After 20 years out of the music and tattoo industries, my book, Caravan of Pain, The True Story of Tattoo the Earth Tour, gave Tattoo the Earth a chance to live again. I had never once in the past 20 years had an inkling of a thought about reviving the concept. I was done. No interest. Realizing that I never thought to revive it was an absolute shock to me. That was how deep I packed it away. I checked in online every now and then to see what was going on, but only out of fleeting interest to see who was taking credit for my shit. I even ended the book saying I'd do it again in a second, and that was true, I guess. But I never imagined I'd actually be given the opportunity before I released the book. I hadn't heard from John Peters in about eight years. But the email blast I sent out in February 2022 announcing the book's publication brought many people from the past out of the woodwork. John owned the Palladium, the famed 2,600-seat music venue in Worcester, and mass concerts, one of the last independent concert promoters left in the U.S. John has been fighting Live Nation for 25 years, and he produced the infamous Tattoo the Earth show in Boston at Suffolk Downs in 2000 the show where we couldn't tattoo because it was illegal and were banned for life afterwards. The next year, when we did the first tattoo convention in Massachusetts after the tattoo ban was repealed, I brought him into it. I liked John, and it was good to hear from him. John said he was halfway through the book and said he was sending it to some of the agents who were involved in the original tour. He wrote, Summer of 2024, let's do a 25th anniversary of Tattoo the Earth Festival. Or this summer, we could do a one-off, Palladium Outdoors. I'll do all the heavy lifting. You get a couple of bucks a head fee, and it helps sell books. What the fuck? People had contacted me over the years wanting to bring Tattoo the Earth back, and I told them I had no interest, and to knock themselves out. I knew they'd never have a chance. I told one guy it was cursed and that I was doing him a favor protecting him from it. But John had the actual ability to pull it off. A few days later, he emailed me the idea of turning the Anthrax, Black Label Society, and Hatebreed package he'd purchased for Inside the Palladium into a Palladium outdoor show, adding a second stage and another eight bands, and thus bringing back Tattoo the Earth on August 27, 2022. 
The outdoor show would take place in the huge parking lot adjacent to the Palladium and had a capacity up to 8,000 people. A few days later, we had a deal, and he said he was already talking to people about a tour for 2023. What the fuck? I was genuinely shocked and excited, but also super leery. My first reaction was not to do it. Tattoo the Earth had damn near killed me. Why take a chance on unleashing the madness again? I'd lived for 20 years without it, and I was ambivalent about bringing it back. Betsy looked pained when I told her about it, like someone hearing that the disease that had been in remission for a long time had come back. Nothing good can come out of this, right? I asked her. Probably not, she replied. Ultimately, I agreed to do it, but only on my terms. I wanted to set it up so I didn't have to be there if it went sideways. Part of me really believed Tattoo the Earth was cursed and hell-bent on destroying me, or if my mental health was in code blue mode. I had not really been built to withstand the level of chaos and anxiety back in the day, and at 61 years old, it had not gotten any better. I have learned to live with bipolar disorder, and though I think I've gotten better at managing it, I've done so in large part by not putting myself into situations that I know will stress me out especially when I'm in depressed mode. I try to avoid big crowds and situations where I can be herded, like an airport or Graceland. I use a combination of Zoloft, weed, a little wisdom, and some tricks I learned along the way to keep myself steady. I have a delay send feature on my texts and emails which have saved me numerable times. When I'm in a deep depressive state, I only send bare necessity emails and avoid people as much as I can especially if it's business-related. When I'm manic, I don't hang out too long when I go out, watch my spending, and try to harness the energy into something creative. The number one bipolar rule is, don't do hard drugs. I accepted long ago that it's a chronic illness, and I'm devoted to keeping my shit together for my family. Putting myself in harm's way for something like Tattoo the Earth was not something to take lightly. Before I agreed, I told John I would never go on tour. Those days were over, I told him. And I was candid about my mental health, addiction, and general craziness. It's all in the book. I'd show up at the first show and the last, Boston and New York, and that's it. I told John I was doing it for three reasons. Back when we did the first tattoo convention in Massachusetts together, my partner fucked with John's money, and I sat by and let it happen. I have had it done to me, and I've done it to people. Everybody in the music business is constantly screwing each other over. And you have to get over it, or you can't exist. But I always liked John, and I regretted being part of it. John didn't even remember what happened, only that it went south, but I told him that having a chance to make it up to him and help him make some money would please me. The second reason was to sell my book and get it in front of a larger audience. The third was for my 15-year-old son to see what his father used to do. I was out of the music business before he came along, and he'd never seen the rock impresario version of me. That was it. If I made a little bread, that would be fine. This all happened before Caravan of Pain was even released, and publishing the book opened my eyes to what a seminal event the original Tattoo the Earth was for the metal and tattoo communities. The bands, the artists, the fans, everyone. As I promoted the book and developed the pages on social media, I received many emails and comments from fans, and all of them involved some sort of calamity endured at a show 
I got a concussion. I broke my clavicle. I got heat stroke. I lost my shoes. My car was stolen. Everyone had a tail. Every musician I interviewed talked about the shitty catering, brutal schedule, searing heat, and utter disorganization. All agreed, though, that it was the best time of their lives and they knew they were a part of something special. So many emailed who said it had been their first show and what it meant to them. Some were still giving me shit for things that happened 20 years ago, like not playing Atlanta. Younger fans bemoaned missing it. Now I know much of the mythic quality for the fans was that they were 16, and the shows you go to at that age become the touchstones. For me, it was the Ramones and the Runaways at the Palladium in New York City in 1977. But for whatever reason, Tattoo the Earth had stuck in people's minds all these years and only grown in reputation. Tattooing had exploded in the past 20 years, too, and I was being recognized for helping kickstart the revolution. My first call was to Naomi Fabricant, who had had an amazing career in music since we barely survived the 2000 tour and was running a music foundation that meant a lot to her. She was speechless when I told her Tattoo the Earth was coming back. She always said Tattoo the Earth changed her life and we'd stayed in touch over the years. I gave Naomi a piece of my action to manage the tattoo piece of it, which was simple. This wasn't a tattoo convention with a hundred booths. This would only be six or seven shops and she would do all the advance work, obtain health permits and such, and run the tattoo village day a show. I decided to ask a local shop, Zaza Inc., to be the host shop and they agreed to do it. Joe and Irene Peterson opened one of the first tattoo shops in Worcester when it became legal in 2001, and it had become one of the most successful shops in the state. Joe and Irene had also put on the Massachusetts Tattoo Festival for 14 years after I walked away from it and turned it into a major event. I met Joe, and once I knew that Lyle Tuttle was his mentor and saw all the Lyle Tuttle memorabilia on the walls, I knew I had the right guy. There would be no risk for Joe. He'd pay no fee for his booth, he could pick the local Massachusetts artist to participate, and we'd promote the shit out of his shop. Once he was on board, I turned it all over to Naomi. I was trying to wrap my head around what was happening. Just referring to Tattoo the Earth in the present tense was a mindfuck, and I was still feeling cautious. But for someone like me who loves a good story, this was a whopper. This story was like Anvil, the story of Anvil the great documentary about second chances and redemption. I felt like the mummy in The Mummy Returns, who comes back to take his rightful place in the kingdom. But I needed a new hook. Just putting music and tattoos on the same level and taking it across the country for the first time was groundbreaking. But it's nothing new now, other than nostalgia. That is what the Worcester show was going to be at its core, like a high school reunion with mosh pits and contusions. But for a tour, bringing six artists on the road with some bands wouldn't cut it. After years of giant music and tattoo festivals, plus reality shows like Ink Masters, body art had almost been overexposed. I broke out the purple train wreck, put on the who, and thought about what we could do on the road that would be different and new. I came up with Tattoo the Earth TV, the ultimate rock and ink road show a live tattoo competition that would be filmed at 20 of the stops during a 2023 U.S. tour. The show would document the madness and mayhem of 10 tattoo artists traveling with a metal tour 
using their talent and creativity to stay on the bus and hoping to make it to the last show. There'd be celebrity hosts and judges, and the loser at each stop would immediately be taken off the tour bus, given a drink card to an Applebee's, and left at the local bus station. By the end of the tour, there would be two artists left on the bus, and the winner would be crowned on stage at the final show. You could do multiple tours on multiple continents in any genre. Tattooing was the haven of metal and hard rock back in the day, but you could have a country tattoo the earth now, and it would be killer. I put a one-page summary together and closed it with this. The plan to launch Tattoo the Earth as a global tour and reality series would place the brand at the nexus of art and music and position it for unlimited spin-offs. Tattoo shops, branded whiskey, apparel, breakfast cereal. Against odds, 20 years after kickstarting a body art revolution, Tattoo the Earth is back and ready to take shit to the next level. I wasn't sure about that bit at the end, but I knew I was on to something. I just wasn't sure it hadn't been done before. Other than the British baking show, reality shows are not my thing. I hadn't seen a second of any of the tattoo-related shows, but Naomi had seen all of them. She was a full-on reality show junkie, and she told me it hadn't been done before and thought it had real potential. I sent the overview to John and he flipped. He had put his band wishlist together. Gojira, Lamb of God, Mastodon, A Day to Remember, Deftones, Mudvayne, In This Moment, and Meshuggah. We'd have one bus for the competing artists, one bus for the TV production, and we'd pitch a big tent at the selected cities for the tattoo competitions. John ran with the idea and was soon coming back with enthusiastic approval from agents, promoters, and his sounding boards in the business. I called Fran Strine, my photographer from the first tour, who was now a Hollywood documentary maker of note. Fran had stayed on the road after the first Tattoo the Earth. He had done videography for Slipknot, Nickelback, and Dolly Parton, and was with Stained for seven years. Tired of the road, he made a well-received documentary about music sidemen called Hired Gun and sold his second, a documentary about Ray Parker Jr., to Sony Pictures. He had a hit and he was in the production pipeline turning out content for the streaming services. Fran hadn't done an unscripted show before, but his connection to the material was profound, and he committed immediately. On a Zoom call, Fran gave John and me the lowdown. We needed a sizzle reel, a flashy five-minute representation of the show that we could film at the Worcester event. Then we would use that to get the money to produce the show, then sell it to one of the services. Fran would only do it if he was in charge of the full production. Story producers, multi-camera and audio at the show, and top-notch post-production. He had a team he worked with, and he said it would come in at thirty to 50000 for the sizzle reel and the slide deck, a glorified PowerPoint we would use to sell the thing. I called John after the meeting, and before I could say we should each put up half the money, he offered to put the whole thing up, and we'd be 50-50 partners and we'd cut Fran in for an equal share, giving us each a third. I called my lawyer from the first tour, Stuart Levy, to let him know I might need some representation. He reached out to his niece, Sharon Levy, who is the president of Unscripted TV at Indomal Shine, North America, the biggest purveyor of reality shows in the world. Sharon developed Ink Masters when she was at Bravo, along with many of the iconic shows of the genre, 
and I was on her calendar within a week. I was back in the music business and developing a reality show. It was so surreal, it was fucked up. John invited me to a Godsmack show he was promoting at the DCU Center, and it was the first time I'd been backstage at a concert in 20 years. I saw Godsmack's drummer, Shannon Larkin, who had played with Amen on the 2000 tour. I'd interviewed Shannon for the book, and he had been a big fan of it from the outset. He told me I was a great writer, and hearing that from such an amazing musician was inspiring. John brought me into the opening act, Wage Wars Dressing Room, where he started pitching them on the 2023 tour and the TV show. John was great. He was pitching the shit out of the idea. A few weeks later, I took my son to a Palladium Outdoors show featuring Newfound Glory. He loved having the all-access bracelet and hanging out backstage. One of the first great thrills of my life was when I was 16 and Michael Epstein, the owner of my father's place, a famed Long Island club in the 70s and 80s, let me go backstage at a Papa John Creech show. And I still get goosebumps thinking about the first time I watched a band from the side of the stage. I was looking forward to my kid experiencing some of that at our show. My son and I watched some of the bands. Then John Peters introduced us to one of the musicians we had just seen, who loved the new Tattoo the Earth concept, and he turned to my son and told him he should know his father is a visionary and a genius. It was priceless. I told my kid that I don't think that's true, and he'd be seeing a lot of people blow smoke up my ass. But it was a cool moment. This was when I went into full beast mode with Tattoo the Earth, something I never thought I would do again. It means going all in, balls to the wall, open heart, no surrender, you're in the way. Well, I'm the mummy, motherfucker, and sucking the life out of you only makes me stronger. I let myself dream and fantasize of massive success for Tattoo the Earth, and though I know deep down that it's all bullshit, I've done pretty well and had a charmed life despite the insanity. The allure of fame and fortune was intoxicating. I made mistakes the first time around. Hubris, ego, drugs, and I wasn't going to let that happen again. Second chances are rare in life. Now I had one and I was not going to fuck it up. Maybe Tattoo the Earth wasn't cursed. I always refer to it as a successful failure, but it never really even had a chance to fail the first time. No one gave it a chance to become what it might be. Now Tattoo the Earth was back to take over the world. Then it all started. Naomi called and said her foundation scheduled a big fundraising event in Boston on the same day as our show that could not be moved. She said she would be there for me the early part of the day to get everything set up, then head into Boston. Her foundation is her main gig and her passion, and I understood, but what the fuck? Tattoo the earth, I muttered. I decided to hire a first-rate production coordinator Naomi knew who would take over when Naomi left. We were planning so much shit now with the filming that I did not want to be bogged down in the bullshit. In addition, I always ended up doing everything at many of my shows. People were always pulled in different directions or bailed, and I'd be there as the producer, media liaison, MC, and it sucked. Making sure we got what we needed for the sizzle reel was my focus, and I was planning to block everything else out. We had our first production meeting with Fran's team and the goal was to see what the Tattoo the Earth story was at its core. What was this show going to be about? 
and why should someone care or want to buy it? Fran hired Jordan Belfi, a Hollywood veteran actor and story consultant, and it was obvious in minutes from the questions he was asking that he knew his shit. We wanted to go into the Wooster show with an exact idea of what we wanted to get, and Jordan would help us find that. We made introductions, and I started telling the Tattoo the Earth story and turned it over to John Peters. He had been so good at pitching the idea, but he was off. He started talking about the music business, how he's only going to put up so much money, and what guarantee did he have that the budget wouldn't explode. I joked that maybe we could get the tattoo artist to surround me as they did in the book, and John seemed shocked that I had a problem with the tattoo artists. That's when I realized John never read or finished the book. He was shocked by the shit I'd been upfront about. He was just off, I figured. And I've spent a massive chunk of my own life off, so I chalked it up to a bad day. I called him right after the meeting to see what was up. Fran's budget came in at 45000 for the pre-show, show, and post-production. Higher than I'd hoped, I asked him to be gentle, and he put in a small amount for his time. This bothered John. I had told John that Fran would do it for nothing, like bands play for nothing, but it still costs something. It was a fraction of Fran's usual fee, and I used the analogy of the three of us starting a landscaping company. I have an idea, John puts up the money, but Fran's the guy riding the mower in the sun all day, and he should get something for it. We had discussed that we could get the work done cheaper, but Fran was in a vaulted money circle, and it was worth paying a premium to be in there with him. Plus, it wasn't only the sizzle reel. We were also filming for a possible documentary, a promo reel for the tour, and a promo reel for the Palladium and mass concerts. I called Fran after speaking to John, clarified some issues, and called John back. He seemed cool with the answers, and we were on track. But something was wrong, and I couldn't quite figure it out. That was the first of weekly Monday meetings we set up leading up to the show. And the Friday before the second meeting, John called me from his car and said he wasn't sure he would be able to secure a tour next year, and asked what guarantees did we have that this will work, and all the stuff we'd already gone over. I was addressing some of his concerns when he said he was getting another call and would call me Monday. I was like, what? You need to call me back. You can't leave this hanging. I didn't speak to John over the weekend, but I figured it was dead and fell into a deep depression. Now it feels like Tattoo the Earth, Betsy said when I told her what was happening. I texted John Monday morning that we should connect before the production meeting. I didn't hear from him and texted again later in the day. He called me five minutes before the meeting and said he was having cold feet. I told him it was too late for that. I offered to throw in whatever money I was going to make on the Worcester show to cover Fran's piece, but he declined. We barely had enough time to get it all done without delaying, and he had already given the green light. People had started working. I was pissed. This was all your idea, John, I said, my voice rising. The show, the tour funding the TV show, the whole thing. I didn't want any of this. I have been following your lead. The only thing that had changed was that Fran wanted to submit invoices for the people who started working on the project and John needed to write a check. John had even started a new corporation for all of it called Tattoo the Screen, a name my son came up with, and that now sits in the bottom of a digital garbage can. John said he couldn't get agents interested in a tour for next year, 
but we didn't even know what we were selling them yet. That's why we were doing the filming. He said he was thinking about retirement and his exit strategy, and he wanted to move his family back to Europe in the fall if he could. It was too late in the process to dither, and I told him I needed to know if he was in or out, and he said if I needed to know right then, then he was out. And that was it. I had to call Fran's team and Naomi and break the news. I wasn't putting the money up for the sizzle reel, and the project was over before it began. It seemed any future for a Tattoo the Earth tour was extinguished. I shook it off and just resolved myself to get through with the Worcester show and get back on with my life. I also had a phone call with Sharon Levy, the reality show producer coming up, and I wasn't sure what to do. I didn't want to waste the call. Naomi and I revamped the idea for a TV show without a music tour, and it became a better idea. Instead of limiting ourselves to one genre on a tour, we would pick 10 music cities and do our own tour with the music and tattoo styles of those cities on display. It would still capture the craziness of traveling on a bus and competing, but it would open it up to a more mainstream audience. Sharon postponed the meeting a few times and I never followed up. I thought about writing this chapter up to this point and sending it to Sharon Levy to see if she wanted to finish the chapter. But Betsy talked me out of it. I couldn't stop beating myself up over being sucked into the same shit again. Though there were some nice moments that came out of it. I had interviewed Mike Bellamy, Sean Vasquez's partner at Triple X Tattoo in New York City back in the day, for the book, and we had addressed and healed decades-old misunderstandings and it was powerful. Before reconnecting for the book, the last time I'd seen Mike was when he tattooed my son's name over my heart, and he'd been in full Charles Bukowski mode. When we spoke for the book, he had un-Bukowski married, moved to Long Island, and was expecting a kid. There is nothing sweeter than the image of a grizzled old tattoo guy with his baby, and I had felt such joy that he had found this life for himself. I know how that felt and how lucky I was. Another cool thing that the revival did was clearing up a long-held misunderstanding between Naomi and Dale Restigini, my videographer from the 2000 tour, who had become an acclaimed music video director. They had worked on a project after the 2000 tour and Naomi got screwed out of some money and thought Dale was part of it. But Dale had gotten screwed too, and he and Naomi were able to clear it up and talked on the phone about new projects. I held on to these healing thoughts because I knew what was coming my way. If John hadn't emailed me about bringing Tattoo the Earth back, I would have already started my next book, and that became my focus again. I think I spoke to John once on the phone before the Worcester show. He went to Europe for a few weeks and essentially ghosted me, as did the rest of his team. John hired Amy Schiaretto, a publicist and legendary name in metal. And before he lost interest, he emailed her and said to put me out front for the press and how it all started with the book and how I'm a good interview and all that shit. She asked me for my availabilities and started setting up press for me. I did a podcast in the middle of July and then there was nothing after that. I figured John told her that he wasn't pushing the Tattoo the Earth brand nationally and to focus attention on Anthrax, BLS and the rest of the bands. I'd probably have done the same thing, though I would have let me know about it. Knowing I was not going to get much press for the book, 
I hired a graphics guy to run a social media promotion campaign leading up to the show that helped me sell some books. Then Naomi emailed me to say she wouldn't be able to work at all that day of the show after saying she could get everything started for me. Let the fucking games begin, I declared. She had obligations to her foundation, but fuck, man. After the TV show fell apart, I decided against hiring a production coordinator and instead hired a kid to help me when I took over from Naomi after she got everything set up. Now I would have to be there all day at a dead show with no future that I never wanted in the first place. My classic recipe for bipolar disaster. I went into a get-through-this-shit mode. The Palladium usually uses the inside of the building for the backstage area when they do the outdoor shows, but we were using it for the tattooing, and there was no place I could huddle and close a door if I needed some time. I decided to park our 20-foot camper in a parking lot near the site and use that as my base. Betsy and my son would hang out during the day, and we'd do it as a family. We had one production call a few weeks before the show, and John said the show wasn't selling great and he didn't want to spend anything on signage. I was going to spend $1,000 on some signs, even though I'd throw them away after the show, just to have something there. John told one of his team to have a beer distributor do a banner for us. They'll put anything on a banner as long as their logo is on it, and we could put that at the entrance, letting people know the tattooing was inside. John's marketing guy suggested a site map, and that was a fantastic idea. We could post it online, print some up, day of show, since it was an older crowd. We could trick it out and list all the tattoo artists, bands, Tattoo the Earth history, info on my book, etc. It was a great solution, and my insurance that people would know there was tattooing inside, so the tattoo artists would have enough customers to make the show worth their while. We'd make it so cool it would be a keepsake. But I rarely got a reply to my emails leading up to the show, and as we got closer, and the site map was nowhere in view, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I tried to ask simple yes or no questions, but still got no answers. I was ultimately assured the map would be ready in time for the show, which was now approaching like a plague. And there I was on show day morning, setting up the tattoo village. My son helped me, and that was cool. And the kid I hired was great, but man, I didn't want to fucking be there. Joe Peterson had put together a great collection of artists, including Can Man, who was at the first Massachusetts tattoo convention in 2001. I had fulfilled my part of the plan with John, but it looked bare inside with no signage and worse outside. The manager of Off the Rails, a restaurant next to the Palladium, came up to me exasperated about the lack of branding. I'd met him when John was into the project and he was expecting some of the cool things we discussed and there was nothing. The show's not selling great, I told him, and John lost interest in the project, so they didn't want to spend the money. There's supposed to be a site map. I saw John's marketing guy before doors opened and he told me the site map would be posted online an hour before the show, but I still hadn't seen it and knew it didn't exist. The guy was lying to my face over a site map, but fuck it, I just needed to get through the day. At 1 p.m. when the doors to the outdoor venue were due to open, I went inside the Palladium, but no one was coming inside to the Tattoo Village. This is what I feared. It was 1.15, then 1.30, 1.45, and still not a soul. 
Anyone who's ever worked in the performing arts has had a show where no one showed up. My first was in 1980 at a club called The Wild West in Virginia, and my best friend, whose band I booked to play there, still gives me shit about it on a weekly basis. Standing in the empty palladium, I started panicking. I'd have to refund the tattoo booth fees. It would cost a couple of grand to make everyone whole, and I was fine with it. Whatever, man. Then at 2 p.m., people started coming in. Someone had told them to hold the doors until 2 p.m., but no one had told me the time had changed. I realized then that no one from the Palladium asked me a question the entire day and treated the whole enterprise with indifference. Then I remembered why we hadn't done a show at the Palladium the second year of the Massachusetts Tattoo Festival. We had done a pre-convention event there the first year, and the whole vibe was so bad and so disrespectful toward the tattoo artists that we decided not to do anything with them next time around. Now it was all coming back to me, and I felt like a schmuck. I saw the front of house guy and discussed the possibility of doing my emceeing. The last time I emceed feeling like this, I told him, was at Giant Stadium in 2000, when I told all the managers, agents, and recording execs in attendance they could suck my dick. Okay, okay, let's not do that, he said, and walked away, which was just as well. Fortunately, the room filled up and the artists were busy, but the vast majority of people outside had no idea there was a tattoo village, air conditioning, and a bar. At least the artists were having a good day and excited about seeing some of the bands, and it was almost over. It was great to be in a room full of tattoo artists with machines blazing again, and there were some other sublime moments for me. A guy approached me who was at the San Bernardino show in 2000 and was an ex-Marine with PTSD. He told me he couldn't read books anymore but had read my book in a few days and it helped him. Ashley Mercurio, who won the VIP contest I held on my book's Instagram and who met him at a Hatebreed show four years earlier, got engaged to him during Hatebreed's set and just being around the hardcore metal community again was fucking awesome. They are so dark and so chill. Scott McLennan, the local writing legend, wrote in the Arts Fuse, For all of the music's fury, protest, anguish, and raw brutality, Tattoo the Earth was a love fest, and he nailed it for me. You can sing about dismembering me. Just do it with love and respect. But the good moments were few and wouldn't make up for what was coming. I was starting to fray as the day went on. In the afternoon, I saw the production manager sitting outside and told her the few remaining details we needed addressed. I thanked her for all her help and told her that it had been a terrible experience doing the show, that I had been ghosted and lied to, and I could not wait to get out of there. You know, back in the day, I told her, referencing John's marketing manager, if someone who worked for me ignored me and lied to my face, I would stick my hand up their ass and rip out their larynx. But I know, I'm old school. When the Worcester show had first been finalized, I'd contacted three guys from Patio Slave Podcast, who had interviewed me when the book first came out. I pitched an idea for a six-part series, including interviews from the festival. I dubbed it Patio Slave Tattoos the Earth, and they ran with it and put together a good series. I knew it would really elevate their podcast and giving a bump to people's careers was always a cool thing about being in my position. 
I got them most of the guests for the first three episodes, including Shannon from Godsmack, Derek Green from Sepultura, Anthrax's agent got a Scott Ian and Frank Bellow, who they planned to feature for the fifth episode. For the fourth episode, we wanted to get someone from Hatebreed, the only band on the bill that had also been on the first tour, to tie together the past and present iterations. Our publicist Amy Schiaretto, who now represented Hatebreed, said she'd gotten Chris Beatty, their bass player, to do it, and then couldn't get it set up. We were running out of time, and she wasn't able to get us one of her own acts. We moved the Anthrax episode up a week to buy us time, and we're a day or so away from having to cancel the fifth episode when she helped get LeJean Witherspoon from Seven Dust. I saw the Patio Slave guys at the show, and Amy had not arranged one interview for the Tattoo the Earth podcast at the show besides Chris from Hatebreed, who seemed confused why it took so long to put the interview together. The podcast got other musicians and tattoo artists, but our own publicist hadn't arranged anything. I met Amy for the first time late in the day, and when she told me she had 25 news outlets there today, tons of questions and answers about why everything had gotten so fucked up for me exploded in my brain like a fireworks display. Amy had 25 news outlets at the show, and I spoke to no one all day. I never went backstage. I never met any of the bands. There is no picture of me from the event. I never met any of the agents or managers who were there. None of the bands got tattoos. Most of the bands didn't even know there was a tattoo village. The local reporter for the Worcester Telegram wrote a great review, but he omitted Joe Peterson's shop. He mentioned every shop but Joe's. Between July 14th and the show on August 27th, Tattoo the Earth, the brand and my book got no press. Google it. I did get a nice profile in Worcester Magazine, but I got one of those myself when the book came out. I asked Amy about Tattoo Press, and she said they only cover national stories. Tattoo the Earth was a national tour, and John was advertising in Inked Magazine and Revolver, but got no coverage in either publication and barely anything nationally. A year before the book came out, I'd read an article by Eli Ennis about defunct tours, and he mentioned Tattoo the Earth. I reached out and told him I was writing a book about it, and he ran an excerpt in Revolver when the book came out. When Amy was proving ineffective, I emailed him about the Patio Slave series and pitched it to him. I never got a reply. After the book came out, I told Eli I was having trouble getting a good contact at Inked to review the book and he put me in touch with the editor-in-chief, Charlie O'Connell, who replied, This sounds like quite the interesting book, and I'd love to do an online review of it for sure, and possibly put something together for in the magazine, perhaps an excerpt or something. I sent the book, followed up a month later, and got no reply. I followed up a month after that, and still no reply. Standing there in the Palladium, putting it all together in my head, I felt empty. I hadn't felt that invisible since I was a closeted heroin addict in New York City in the 80s. I had been erased. I wasn't on the sitemap. In the few pictures there are of me, I tried to do my scrunched up metal face from the old days, but at my age it looked like I was having a mild stroke. I stopped in the Palladium office and exchanged some pleasantries with John and his team, just keeping the vibe okay until it was over. I left the office and John's marketing guy followed me into the lobby and asked if I had a minute. 
That was the first question he or anyone from the Palladium had asked me all day. It quickly devolved into a shouting match about all the bullshit before the show and my anger at him lying to my face. Against my better judgment and knowing what the outcome was going to be, I went into the office with him to see John and Scott Lee, a metal legend in Massachusetts, who helped to put the show together. It quickly took a turn, and I was being ganged up on. It got more and more heated, and I wasn't articulating myself well. I was still trying to piece together what happened, and my mental health was crumbling. I was getting defensive and starting to verbally flail and strafe. I'm just not good when surrounded. When I'm that stressed and getting ganged up on, there is no amount of Zoloft, weed, campers full of family members, tattoos, or anything that can keep my defenses from crumbling. I made a shitty remark to Scott Lee about something he had said earlier in the day, something I would have ignored on any other day, and he got pissed off, jumped to his feet, and got in my face. Scott is huge, like Hiccup's father in How to Train Your Dragon and I happened to really like him and have a ton of respect for him. He was the only person in that room who'd done what they said they were going to do, but now things were completely spiraling, and I was feeling threatened. The marketing guy was huge too, or at least tall at 6'8". It all went cinematic crazy in a disassociated way, and a disembodied me appeared, like out of Ghost or Jacob's Ladder. But he wasn't passive. He was the strongest and worst version of the fucking toxic voice that had been in my head since I could dream and only comes out when my defenses are down and I'm being attacked. Disembodied me was laying it on heavy. You fucking loser. You sick old man. You knew this was going to happen. This is why this all failed in the first place. You're writing the chapter and you're still too fucking broken to stop it. The last time I'd been surrounded and threatened like this was by Paul Booth and the rest of the tattoo artists at Red Rocks during the first Tattoo the Earth tour. The last time I'd felt like I'd been blackballed was by Paul Booth after the 2000 tour, and then again after I walked away after the second Massachusetts Tattoo Festival. That was his game in the way of the tattoo world back then. They either ganged up on you like they did Naomi and me on the 2000 tour, or they shut you down so you couldn't operate in the industry. He and I reconciled after the first tour, and he told me he'd blackballed me and fessed up to all the shit he'd orchestrated on the first tour to fuck me up. A year after I walked away after the second Worcester convention, I did some consulting for the first Boston tattoo convention. Then I got a threatening email from Philip Liu, who I loved and respected. At the Boston show, a photographer crony of Booth's said he wanted to punch me in the face because I cost him money when I canceled vendors at one of my shows. I walked out of that show in 2003, and from that moment until I walked into Joe Peterson's shop in 2022, I had spoken to only two tattoo artists, Mike Bellamy, who tattooed my kid's name over my heart, and some random guy who put the who bullseye on my arm when I turned 60. This was all running around my head as I'm being ganged up on and I'm wondering what the fuck I'd done to deserve the shit I was getting. Was it something from 20 years ago? All I'd asked for from John and his team were set times, a site map and a sign, which they forgot to make. I was ghosted too much to be able to become annoying. John motioned for me to leave before it even got worse. And I walked out, hooked up my camper, and took my family home. As soon as I got home, I emailed Scott Lee, apologized, and he accepted. 
I love and respect the shit out of that guy. And bipolar helpful tip number 12 is to apologize quickly. I was in bed before anthrax finished. I dreamt that I was at a pool when my son was little, and he was playing with a seahorse thing. And I pushed it away from him, just as a shark swam by and ate the seahorse. I woke up dead empty. Now I've woken up empty plenty in my life, and even in those times I had a moment or more when I woke up where I felt normal, whatever that is, before whatever crushing reality crept in or the disease depression voice kicked in. There's a glimmer of hope before the darkness comes. There's something to hold on to for a time. Dead empty is when you're fucked the millisecond you hit consciousness and you're flat, flat, flat like in a G-force chamber. Sinking, getting sucked down, and wrung out like a rag. It must be what dying feels like, I thought, and heaved a sob that sounded like a death rattle. But unlike 20 years ago, when it took me a year to get out of bed after the first tattoo the earth, I rose after a day, strong and determined. I hadn't been planning to add a new chapter to this book until Amy bragged about her 25 press contacts at the show, but I dusted myself off and began writing furiously on legal pads. I didn't come to writing easily. Wanting to be a writer was one of those things that helped me get off heroin in 1987, and though I'm a competent writer, I soon gave up on trying to find my voice and be a great writer. I've written a lot in my career, but not the writing I felt I was meant to do. I was almost 60 before I published my first book about my closeted junkie days called Get Off. Only now I am comfortable and confident to declare I am a writer, and I felt like my voice had been silenced. Tattoo the Earth was an idea and a concept. I developed it creatively and artistically, but it wasn't art. I was presenting other artists. Caravan of Pain is my art and my voice. It's a memoir, and I spilled blood on the page to bring it to life. To me, the book isn't about music or tattooing or even Tattoo the Earth. It's about a vision quest and seeing your dream through to the end. It's about my struggles with addiction and mental illness and my dreams and how they intersect with creativity. I thought writing openly and honestly about my struggle could help and inspire people. And I wanted to share the great history of Tattoo the Earth with a new generation, and that didn't happen. Who did what and why? I don't give a shit. John told me he didn't tell Amy to shift the press focus from Tattoo the Earth, and I'd never met Amy before the show, so I don't know what happened there. Maybe it was something I wrote in the book that offended someone. Though I really took it easy on everyone, I didn't want it to be that kind of book. As a base point, I always feel like the world is conspiring against me, a symptom of my Jewishness. So it doesn't take much for me to become paranoid. I also assume that the world is conspiring against me because of something I did, that I deserved it. I was bullied as a kid and that's how I felt back then, like it must have been my fault. I later became a bit of a bully as an adult, encouraged by working in notoriously bullying industries, until I corrected myself. I had some of that, this must be my fault feeling after the Worcester show, but quickly shook that shit right off. The day after the fracas in the Palladium office, I texted John and apologized for losing my temper, even though I was still spitting mad at him. I heard nothing back. The next day, I texted again and said I'd like to settle the show. No reply. I texted him again the next day to see if we could wrap it up, 
and he replied that he thought we should split my fee to make up for the past. I was supposed to receive $2 per head, but the check he sent was actually half of the half, which meant on a show that sold 3,400 tickets at $60 a head before merch, beer, vendors, and sponsors, I made $1,710.50, sold three books, and was erased. So what to do with Tattoo the Earth? I am now certain that it came to this universe to destroy me. But I have beaten this motherfucker before. I'm planning a trip to Egypt, and I'm going to hike into the desert and dig the deepest hole I can like a shell-shocked soldier trying to dig a foxhole, and I'm going to bury it deep away so it never haunts me again. Though I'm convinced my grandson will find it one day, and it will come back to torture new generations of aldermans. As for me, I'm a writer, and I have a new book to write.